Trigger warning. Please note, this episode has mentions of sexual assault and violence. Listener discretion is advised. If you or someone you know needs help, resources you can reach out to are available at the end of this episode and in the show notes. Shh, you can't ask someone that. Why do you want to make people uncomfortable? You shouldn't ask such questions. What would people say? Bro, who cares about all that? Don't ask these questions. What's the point in talking about things like that? It doesn't help anyone. Nobody wants to know that. Wait, is that a dear question? Why this now? By Reset. Welcome to Why This Now by Reset, a show that sheds light on topics less spoken about and raises questions rarely asked. I'm your host, Akanksha Tangri, and today we're going to talk about what it's like for survivors to return to intimacy after experiencing sexual violence and trauma. According to the latest statistics available by the National Sexual Violence Resource Center, 81% of women and 43% of men in America have reported experiencing some form of sexual harassment in their lives. India's National Crime Records Bureau reported that the country recorded an average of 87 rape cases daily in 2019. That's a rise of over 7% from the previous year. Given the frequency at which sexual violence occurs throughout the globe, it is both surprising and disheartening to see how little we talk about the long-term effects of sexual trauma and how the emotional impact stays long after the physical wounds have healed. The focus for many is the actual act of the assault itself, but very rarely do we focus on the different ways it affects a survivor's life. I spoke to three women. The first is one of my close friends, Sara Bhaiwala, who works in public health. She tells me about her assault and what happened in the aftermath. In high school, I was gang raped by four men when I was abroad and then kind of started a series of really messed up problematic relationships with myself and with the partners that I chose. And that showed up both emotionally, mentally, and as well as as physically in my sort of physical relationships with partners after that happened. And, you know, I saw it both in in a way that was me wanting to feel as invisible as possible, wearing super loose clothing, wanting to just kind of disappear and not be noticed. And then also periods of relative promiscuity in some ways, wanting to reclaim power or reclaim some sort of anger that I didn't know I might have had. And I was never really able to, I think, find the balance or find a person even that I met that I felt like I believe this person cares and loves for me and also gives me what I also need, which is that sexual desire component. I never known that those two were possible at the same time. And I still struggle with it, but I think through a lot of years of therapy, things have really changed. For a long, long period of time after that happened to me in high school, I did not understand what was going on with my body, how I felt about my body, how I could show up in romantic and physical relationships 
and it took me a long time to stop being afraid. Sohela Abdullahi is a writer, editor, counselor, and activist. She's best known for her book, What We Talk About When We Talk About Rape. She draws on her own experience, her work with hundreds of survivors at a rape crisis center in Boston, as well as three decades of grappling with the issue of rape as a feminist intellectual. In 1980, a 17-year-old Sohela was spending the summer before college in her family home in Mumbai. She and her male friend were out on a walk when they were accosted by four armed men who proceeded to physically attack them and sexually assaulted her. The men were released hours later from police custody. She talks about how the trauma affected her. Does it stop after the rape? No, absolutely not. It begins. It begins. And, you know, that's actually what my entire book is about because you know, you get up and depending on who you are, you have all your baggage that you brought with you to this event and then everything that happens after. So, I mean, where, where do I begin? You know, your own healing, there's physical healing, there's spiritual healing, there's mental healing, there's the legal system. There's every single relationship in your life is now affected. There's no right way for a woman to react after she is sexually assaulted. But we, as a society, have a laundry list of expectations from survivors. They have to spring into action and report the assault immediately. They need to have processed their experiences and then articulate it to family and friends. They need to show emotion. And they need to have an answer to all the questions coming their way. All this, while people around them may not even believe them, or worse, blame them for the sexual assault. In 2020, a judge of the Karnataka High Court in India, while granting bail to a man accused of rape, reproached the survivor because it is, quote, unbecoming of an Indian woman to fall asleep after she is ravished, end quote. The standards of perfect victimhood are not just imaginary, but are commonplace for women to experience and eventually are extremely harmful. Tara Fox, a trauma therapist in New York who works with survivors of sexual violence, told us how many women end up internalizing the blame for the sexual assault they went through. This is usually because of the socially constructed notions of chastity and the honor attached to women's bodies. First of all, the whole idea of virginity is kind of rooted in a patriarchal idea that the man's body has more power than the woman's body. Women will feel like it's their fault or that it has something to do with them. Somebody's intentional choice to commit that type of violence has nothing to do with the survivor. It wasn't their choice, right? If it had anything to do with them, it wouldn't have happened. So we have to start from that point, is that this was something that the perpetrator chose to commit. But as a society, we look at the survivor. We have this whole conversation on what did the survivor do before? What did they do afterwards? How has that impacted their life? And absolutely, it has consequences. We need to provide the care, the support, and the tools for healing. 
But the whole conversation about the assault should be with the perpetrator, because that's the person who made the intentional choice to commit it. So now, when we look at the shame that is being put on survivors, it is a complete misunderstanding of who made the intentional choice. Sohela's experience with law enforcement after her assault was similar to what Tara talked about. The perfect victim is a myth, a myth that prevails in people's minds and creates an expectation of how a survivor should be and act. Eventually, this narrative only prevents us from being able to identify or help them and leads to victim blaming and shaming. Here's Sohela telling us how she didn't conform to society's standards of a perfect victim. But who is considered a perfect victim? She takes us back to the rape of Jyoti Singh or Nirbhaya in 2012 in India's capital New Delhi, which garnered worldwide attention. People do dump on you for not being perfect, but not in my case, because like I said, I was really, I was 17, so in some ways I hadn't been socialized enough. But the person who dumps on you the most is yourself. I spent years, because I was with somebody else, when it happened and he was really badly hurt and they beat him up and broke his bone and did all this stuff. So I felt really guilty because going for a walk had been my idea. So rather than blaming the rapists for what they did, I felt really bad that I had, you know, why did I do that? And the thing is the perfect rape victim is a real trap because actually the only perfect rape victim is the dead one. Like Jyoti Singh, you know, Jyoti Singh became a massive hero in everybody's mind because once she was dead, then she could do no wrong, right? She, you know, she fit all the Indian stereotypes of you fight till you die. There's no way you ask for it because no one asked to be killed. And anybody else, there's always something that they should have done. You know, and in my case, it was like I immediately reported to the police and they absolutely did not believe us. They looked at me. I was wearing jeans. That was, you know, in 1980, you didn't wear jeans. Then my hair was not tied up. I had really long hair. And also the biggest thing is that they came over and I was not this weeping mess because, you know, by the time they came, I was done weeping and I was alive and I was so thrilled to be home. And I was trying to put on a good face because my father was really upset. And also the guy I was with, I didn't want him to feel bad. So there was all this stuff. So they walked in and instead of seeing some shrinking, weeping creature, I was kind of energized and euphoric and happy to be alive and that just didn't that didn't work at all for them so it was definitely I did not fit regardless of what society perceives there is no linear experience of trauma it manifests itself in survivors in many different ways often as a permanent fixture in their life Zara and Sohela talk about the aftermath of their assaults. That incident combined with different aspects of low self-esteem I already had, just it really pushed me down further in not understanding or not wanting to understand who I was and want to be able to show up authentically as myself out of this fear that either a romantic partner, either a friend would not truly accept me as I am if they knew who I really was. And so it was easier to either be quiet, be someone else, be someone I thought other people wanted me to be, 
really not be able to come out of that shell out of fear of being judged or being criticized. I mean, I had nightmares, one does, you know, the, and flashbacks and the kind of textbook things that you read about. Then there were the people who you sort of think in your mind that the thing that's most affected is sex, right? Because it's this act of sexual violence and so you might have flashbacks. But then it's not like that necessarily. Like for me, the biggest trauma actually was going to the dentist. I used to hate going to the dentist because I would lie there and be completely traumatized. I couldn't speak, you know, masked person leaning over you. And then when I wrote my book, I actually have a whole chapter on dentistry called A Bag Full of Dentures. And it's about flashbacks and medical care. So in the face of sexual trauma, how does your brain cope? Tara takes us through what happens. First of all, there's the very real way of managing fear. When sexual violence happens, it has nothing to do with the survivor, but the survival brain, right, is going to convince you that it did so that you can feel safe. It's an adaptive coping mechanism that for a very short amount of time makes sense. If you feel like it has anything to do with yourself, it means that you can just not do that and it won't happen again. And so for a very split second of time, it is a way that your brain is going to protect you, give you a sense of safety and security. Even if it's not accurate, in that moment, it's survival. It's a survival reaction. Like the prefrontal cortex, it's the part of the brain that like makes all the decisions, is hijacked during trauma. It's the part that doesn't function. So all the energy goes towards like fight, flight, freeze, or fawn. And in that specific moment after something like that happens, to feel safe and secure, you have to feel like you are in control. And the truth is you're not in control when sexual violence happens. It's because you're not in control that you're unsafe, right? Somebody else was in control. And this was something that was experienced passively. So all these intentional ways of taking control might be harmful, might give you a negative body image. And so if survivors don't talk about it, if the environment around them doesn't allow for this conversation to exist, then there's no other option but to blame your body or yourself. Research shows that trauma of sexual abuse can make it difficult for survivors to fully connect with their romantic partners on an emotional level. According to a 2004 study in the Journal of Family Psychology, trauma survivors often report a decrease in relationship satisfaction along with impaired expression of emotion, sexual activity, intimacy, communication, and adjustment. Returning to physical intimacy with a romantic partner after a traumatic incident is tough. Trauma of any kind often leads to your body becoming defensive when subjected to physical touch. Relationships aside, any kind of physical touch can trigger some survivors of sexual assault or even make them hypervigilant. Sarah and Sahela give examples. I think it took me a long time to realize that that's what was triggering me. I had honestly no clue, but I 
I had noticed and other friends had noticed for a long time that for years I've always been extremely skittish and extremely, if someone comes from behind and taps me on the shoulder or let alone, you know, a guy putting his arms around me, I will literally jump and scream. Like it's still like just a gut reaction, I think. Um, but that comes directly from, I've learned now through through the work that I've been doing that comes exactly from what happened. And, you know, just I think there's so much power in knowledge of something. Like we all have different triggers and different traumas. That's a really good point. I mean, the whole thing of being jumped from behind, I can completely relate to. You know, for years I couldn't sit in a restaurant unless my chair was against the wall because I didn't know who was going to come behind me. But think what a huge burden it puts on survivors because they have to constantly explain themselves to people and that's really tough. Along with the hypersensitivity to physical touch, there are numerous ways in which sexual assault can impact how a person behaves. Here's Tara taking us through the various effects on the mind and body. I think the list is really endless, not only on a physical level, but also on a psychological level. It really takes every shape and form depending on the experience of sexual violence and all the different elements that allowed survivors to make sense of it. Something that we see often is going to be almost a way that survivors are going to invalidate why it doesn't feel good, right? It's going to be a lot of physical pain. It's going to be no sexual appetite at all or hyper arousal. And this like when the nervous system is hyper aroused, it's always on alert, which means it's never going to feel safe. So intimacy can feel very anxiety provoking. Every time they'll think about it, anxiety comes up. Every time they're in it, it's uncomfortable. Also, some survivors will disconnect emotionally. And that's when it will be more of a like dissociating process where they will not be present, not be able to be comfortable in the moment. So it will be almost like they're not really there in the moment because it's unbearable for whatever reason, for whatever association the brain makes. Also, the like physical consequences are drastic. It can be from just constant pain to actual like biological issues uh, that come up, not only right specifically afterwards, but a long time afterwards. And endometriosis, for example, can be closely linked to it. Eating disorders can be linked to it. Whatever it is that has to do with the way we have perceived our bodies and the way the body for an instant, became a place of harm and violence. And that is going to manifest. And for other people, it can also be something like the impossibility of experiencing pleasure. And that can last for a very long time uh, after sexual violence, until there was really like the process of rediscovering caring, healthy relationship with your own body. And we also don't often talk about it enough, but the image survivors have of their own bodies can be completely distorted after sexual violence occurs because often there is no 
there is no logical reason why this happened, right? Sexual violence is never going to make sense. So survivors are going to internalize the idea that something must be wrong with them, that it must have to do something with who they are, how their body looks, something from them. And that's going to create a really can, not always, but can create a very negative body image. An aversion to intimacy may be because the survivor is struggling to find the right vocabulary to express their emotions or are dealing with issues of self-worth. They could also be unsure about how a potential partner will react when told about the sexual assault. And then this gap can also result from a partner's inability to be sensitive, present, and accepting towards the survivor when they open up about their past and are at their most vulnerable. For Zara, her experience with a partner who couldn't show up for her emotionally went on to further exacerbate her tendencies to blame herself. I had found myself on a few dates with this person and, you know, my my confidence was still quite low. I was not truly showing up, you know, fully as I was. And I think, you know, when, when that happens, it's natural for the other person to be a little frustrated. Like, why is this girl not opening up to me? And I felt really sort of in a dark hole. This was after a few dates and I felt like I was in this dark hole and felt like, I really want this person to know who I am. And so sort of grasping at straws a little bit, I felt like, okay, maybe if I tell them this really terrible thing that happened to me, which is a big part of my life, but, you know, it doesn't define who I am, but I I wanted to let them in somehow. And I wasn't able to, at least in some of those initial dates and conversations, I felt like I wasn't able to really get through to this person, hey, see me, see me, understand me, see me. And that's, I think, what a lot of us are just wanting, all humans just want to be seen, understood, and loved. And so, you know, I remember very vividly that, that evening just feeling like I need to somehow communicate who I am. And so I shared this incident of what, of what happened to me in high school. And I think they responded fine at the time, but I could see that there was something calculating going on. I didn't feel like the space was safe or I didn't feel like I was being seen as a person or an adult, but instead being seen as a small little girl again, which is kind of how I felt leading up to some of those dates. Um, And, you know, I think that is a lot of work that I had to do on myself, but In retrospect, I think later on in the relationship, as things became more and more serious and then, you know, different problems started to arise, this night came up again. And the response from my ex-partner was, after you told me about the rape, I was no longer able to see you as a woman or see you as a sexual being. And so I wasn't able to feel that attracted to you. And that's why I've had trouble with commitment. And I remember feeling like, oh, no, it's it's my fault. It's my fault that I chose to share this with them. I shared it too soon. This is my fault. I've ruined everything. And, you know, now this person doesn't feel as attracted to me in the same way because they They're constantly seeing me as this small girl, which is how I felt inside anyway. So 
And that is seared so far into my brain for such a long time that it's my fault that this happened. And it took me so long to get over that before even that relationship started to stop feeling dirty, to stop feeling like, oh, you shouldn't have been walking there or, you know, all all sorts of reasons I came up with for why I was bad. And that comment, it took me a while to understand how I felt about it. Considering the reaction a partner can have when told about the assault, is there a right time to have this conversation? And should women even have to disclose this to a potential romantic partner? Sohela shared her thoughts. For me, it worked best to tell someone early on. Also, think of the reasons why people have relationships. Everyone's not having sex with someone because they want to spend their life with them. Maybe you're having a one-night stand. Maybe you don't want to share that, and that's fine. You know, so I, I think it's really individual for every person when they tell, you know. If, you, if you're in a relationship where you want to share all of you and get really intimate, I think it's important to tell. But every relationship is actually not like that. And also, if you want to wait to build up trust because it's hard for you to tell, that's fine. You know, again, it's all about you have control of the narrative. You know, for some of us, it's easier to head it off at the pass, but for other people, it's not. As Sohela said, you should decide what works best for you when and if you're ready to have this conversation. But often, for women of color, the stigma around sexual assault can be heightened considering the taboo around these kinds of conversations. Women of color are constantly told from an early age by society and the family that the responsibility of the family's honor and reputation rests on them. Sarah digs deeper into her past relationships and tells us how these conversations panned out for her. I want to be very careful about kind of making generalizations, at least from my end, just because I've obviously only dated a few people seriously, but I did feel like I was not able to have a conversation with my partners of color, with the exception of a few. And so it's interesting to kind of go back and look and and think like, hey, no, I did have partners of color that were extremely kind to me and extremely understanding and never put pressure on me. I had two partners that were never, never putting pressure on me to do anything physical. And, you know, one of them even said, Zara, I don't think you're ready and at peace with yourself yet. So I want to remove sex from the equation. Like, I love you apart from that. We don't need to do that. Following that, I did have two more partners that, and they also happened to be men of color. Both of them, I think I was able to share what happened, but did not feel like there was any room for a conversation or any interest. I think perhaps there was, but they just didn't have the words, but It was more of like, hey, this happened, okay. And I was getting to a point in my development where I wanted to talk about it. I wanted to be able to understand it. I wanted to have a healthy physical and emotional relationship with these people. But knowing that there's something inside that was affecting it and wanting to be able to talk about it, but very quickly being shut down at any sort of discussion around 
both sex and, you know, sexual violence. And I think they were supportive in their own ways, but finding it very difficult to converse and conceive of, you know, your partner being in that situation and and seeing you as this victim or seeing you as a smaller person, I think really, really affected us. And then I will say, I think I have dated folks that are not people of color. So I have dated white men as well. And I will say like it, I, my experience, they have been so warm and wonderful and engaging and, and figuring out how to make me, their number one goal was to figure out how I can feel safe and how can they be a support while also looking at themselves how they showed up in their own relationships in the past. So I think it was really interesting to see like in my white partners, and I saw this in my own brother, to be honest, like after I told him what happened, he really sat down and reevaluated, hey, how do I show up in my romantic relationships? How do I treat women? While sharing details of one's trauma can help build trust and even intimacy with a romantic partner, there are other things a survivor can do. First, gain that missing sense of control, and then understand what makes them feel safe in a relationship. Tara shared some ways survivors can understand their own bodies again, and the importance of consent. I would say the first thing is figuring out how you can experience pleasure. Figuring out how you can experience pleasure on your own, right? Self-exploration of what feels good now is really important. If you're not able to be intimate with yourself, it might be really hard to be intimate with somebody else. So that can be kind of a step one of figuring out when you're masturbating, when you're pleasuring yourself, it's something that you have full control of. So you know that you're going to be safe because you can stop at any time. So that is the first test of knowing that you're in full control if you can experience pleasure or not. If that's not at all possible, and it used to be possible before, right? Then there might still be something to explore. There might still be some processing of the trauma that has to happen to feel safe with somebody else. When you're going to be intimate with somebody else, The biggest element is trust. Do you trust the other person to respect your boundaries? Do you know what your boundaries are? How do they look like? How are you going to be able to express them? And all these conversations around what's going to feel good, what's going to feel safe, and what your boundaries are, enthusiastic consent, which is the crucial element after you've had experience where your boundaries were broken and your consent was not respected, enthusiastic consent is gonna be the only way to communicate through intimacy. In her work as a sexual violence counselor, Tara explains how she helps survivors differentiate between intimacy and their past experience. I think, first of all, the most important aspect of the work we do is separating sexual violence from intimacy. I think they actually have nothing to do with each other. By nature, sexual violence does not have the intimacy part. And that's why it's violence, because it's not consensual, because there isn't that 
comfort, there isn't the safety, there isn't the desire. So when it's not consensual, it cannot be intimate. And then we can work through the violence first, figure out exactly what that is, and then only can we work on what is intimacy now. It can be a long journey towards recovery for many survivors, but it's definitely not an impossible one. Survivors, especially in communities of color, are unable to access the mental health resources that are necessary for them to navigate a traumatic incident. And there isn't one single answer that is applicable to every survivor. While some turn to therapy, others feel more comfortable finding support among family and friends. Let's listen to Sohela's road to recovery in the aftermath of her assault. You have to remember that was 1980. I was 17 years old. I was living in the U.S., even though it happened in India, but I was I hadn't grown up in that. You know, I was an Indian. I didn't grow up in all this get therapy and get healing. So now that I look back, I was actually pretty smart about the things I did, but I didn't do them consciously. And most of the credit actually goes to my family. Like we, this happened and then it didn't occur to anybody to blame me except the police. And we didn't care that much about them, you know, except that we couldn't press charge. So I think that for me, the steps I took were kind of taken for me. Like everyone assumed that I was going to be fine. So I was fine. I mean, if I broke down, they were there. But no one expected me to be this terrible, broken person. And I wasn't, you know. And I, I don't know what would have happened if I had been. I assumed they would have supported me. But they just assumed that two weeks later, I was going to start college. So I did. You know, no one said, oh, you're too traumatized to start college. Don't. And for me, that was the best thing. And then later on, I started working for the Rape Crisis Center. And I didn't know, I didn't think of it as something I was doing for myself, but turned out to be the best thing for myself since I had never had any counseling. But through becoming a counselor, I kind of worked it out in my head. So I'm not saying this is the journey for everyone. You know, if, if you need to stop your life and, and wait and heal, and oh, that's great, whatever you need to do. But for me, it just kind of worked out that everything fell into place and was still awful and terrible and nightmares and all that stuff. I'm not trying to say it was easy. But I had, you know, I had the main thing. I had the people closest to me were completely on my side, which I think too many people don't have. Sohela's experiences at the Rape Crisis Center and her expertise as a counselor taught her a lot about the need for a stable support system. However, not every survivor has the privilege of a safety net among loved ones. Tara spoke to us about the ways in which many family and friends changed their behavior towards a survivor after their sexual assault. This can include gaslighting and even blaming the survivor. I think gaslighting is the most harmful thing that happens after sexual violence because to the point we've been discussing, why are we even talking about what happened before and what happened after? Why is that even part of the conversation? In a way, like we don't care. It's absolutely irrelevant what happened before, what happened after, because in that moment, sexual violence occurred. Somebody made the intentional decision 
to disrespect somebody else's boundaries and disrespect consent, right? Somebody said no, and that no wasn't heard. If it was right said or not, it doesn't matter in whatever way it happened. And it can happen in the middle of whatever it is, right? It might've started as intimacy. Somebody might've agreed to something and they change their mind. They say no. At that exact second, it is not consensual anymore and it is sexual violence. And I think that also is something we have to think about because we have this unique narrative of sexual violence happens in dark alleys, in the street and like by strangers. But sexual violence happens so often with people we know, with people we trust, with people that we thought were safe to be around, that we thought were safe to be vulnerable with. It happens in marriages, in relationships. So we need to completely step out of this unique narrative of you shouldn't have gone there, you shouldn't have done that. No, nothing, absolutely nothing will excuse sexual violence. So when we do this gaslighting process of, oh, you shouldn't have done that, you shouldn't have done this, we're completely refusing to acknowledge what we're talking about. It's like choosing to engage in a completely different conversation because the conversation around sexual violence is too uncomfortable. And for a lot of family members, friends, that's what happens. It's unbearable to acknowledge that this happened. Our brains work like that. They're trying to find a reason of why it happened. And that's not going to exist. And so whenever we hear gaslighting or we have experienced it in the past, ask yourself if the center of the conversation was acknowledged. Did we acknowledge that somebody else made the choice to commit that type of violence? In Suhaila's book titled, What We Talk About When We Talk About Rape, she has an entire chapter on how to support survivors. She read out an excerpt for us. I came up with this thing, it's a list, and it's called the Abdul Ali Guidelines for Saving a Rape Survivor's Life. So I can just read it to you. And the thing is, remember, it's not just women, it's actually much harder for men who've been raped because there's a lot more stigma and there's a lot more shame. So this... I'm saying she, but it really applies to everyone, you know, all genders. So here's the trick. This is all you need to know. Be horrified, but don't fall off your chair so that she has to take care of you. Believe her. No ifs, ands or buts. Just believe her. Like you're not a court of law. You know, you don't have to worry about the legal ramifications. Let her take the lead. If she wants to talk, okay. If she wants to be quiet, okay. If she wants to cry, okay. She wants to joke, that's okay. She wants to throw things, that's okay. Ask her what she wants, no need to guess. Encourage her to get help, medical, legal, physical, mental, but don't force it. If someone says no, that's no. Don't ask for details, but let her know that you're open to listening if she wants to elaborate. Don't question her judgment, please. Don't say, why did you do this, why did you do that? Let her frame it the way she wants, in the words that she chooses. Don't try to understand and analyze, just be there. Remember, this is the same person you knew before you knew that she was raped. Treat her the same. Something terrible has happened to her, but she's the same person. She might also need reminding of this. 
And last but not least, I could give no advice better than Catelyn Moran's, don't be a dick. So, you know, the thing is just, you just be there and you just give them what they want. It's not that difficult, really. It shouldn't be. It's just that, you know, we, especially women, I, I mean, I hate to say it, but the worst responses I've ever had have been from women. And I think partly it's because we're scared. You hear that this happened to someone, you, and I do it too. I immediately start thinking, what would I have done differently so that it wouldn't happen to me? So even if you have those thoughts, that's not what you say. You don't say, I'd never let that happen. You don't say, I wouldn't have done the same thing. You just don't say that stuff because imagine what it's like to hear it. Thank you to our guests Sohela Abdullali and Zara Bhaiwala for their deeply personal stories and Tara Fox for her insights. While we focus a lot on speaking out, do know that it's okay if you aren't ready and don't want to talk about what you've been through. That's it for today's episode of Why This Now by Reset. I've been your host, Akanksha Tangri. Do check out our work on ResetYourEveryday.com. We have more information and resources around sexual assault and trauma there. Follow us on at ResetYourEveryday on Instagram. If you'd like to get in touch with us or share your story, send an email to hello at resetfest.com. 